Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to be sure to take a few moments to encourage everyone to allow themselves some self-care and a break during the upcoming holiday season. No matter your religious background or your family situation, these next few weeks can be very stressful for everyone for a variety of reasons. And it's important to take a step back and give yourself that break whenever possible and in whatever ways you can. So to follow my own advice, this week my team and I are taking a moment to rejuvenate ourselves and make plans for all of the amazing shows we have coming up for you in the new year. So today, in place of a new episode, we are re-airing one of our favorite episodes from our exclusive Patreon archive, which also features our early interviews with people like Yanya Lalich, Tony Ortega, Chris Shelton, and many more. If you'd like to gain access to our first 50 episodes, which are available only in this archive, as well as all of our bonus episodes and more, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com indoctrination. You can help support our mission of protecting people from systems of control for as little as $5 a month. It goes a very long way to keeping the show on the air and is very much appreciated. You can find a link to sign up in the show notes of this episode. And now here is a replay of our episode from 2019 with Matthew Remsky. So it's an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's a, it's actually the honor is mine. Uh, your podcast has been really helpful for, I mean, so many listeners, but for me personally, it's been a really uh, healing thing to be able to, to see how all of the threads tie together. So thank you for all of that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. I've been enjoying doing it. And so it's been fun also because yeah. then I get to meet people who are doing this kind of work and talk to you also about your own particular experiences. And so as I often start, I know you're busy with your book and all of that, but what do you do at other times? At other times, that's a good question. Um, I, <laughs> I ha- right. What's new for me is that um, I actually, this is very new, so it might be even premature to say, but um, I have made a commitment to start taking care of myself a little bit more concertedly, uh, especially after finishing up with this book that's about to be published in March. It's taken about three years and uh, I have, it's taken a toll. And, uh, you know, at a certain point I realized, oh, I, I really trained myself to sleep no more than four hours at a time. And, and I'm not exercising as much as I should. And uh, I'm really fulfilled by this work, but it also feels compulsive. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've slowed down a little bit. I've decided not to take on any new work for the next two months. I've got two months before the launch date. There's still there's still a bunch of book details to take care of, but I'm not taking on anything new, I'm trying to spend a little bit more time with um, my family. Uh, we have two little boys. Nice. Um, yeah. And, um, and also just really t- taking stock of the fact that uh, working in the cult analysis 
field as I have been doing has been stressful in a number of ways um, related not just to the material and to the the energy that it takes to to hear the stories and and to begin to put them together and to process but but also how they trigger my own memories and so that's been a strange thing to realize is that is that I've been doing this work not only to do the work because I think it's the right thing to do but also and because I have some facility with it but also because it's been personally meaningful to me uh, and there has been some recovery aspects in there but also uh it's re-triggered in certain ways and actually there's you know i might talk about it later but there's a project that i've actually had to put on hold a little bit because it's it's directly relates to um one of the groups that i was in uh from Uh, 96 to 2000 so Yeah. Yeah. I I certainly want to hear your history. I think just talking a little bit about that, about being re-triggered, something that I talk to my clients about is taking the material in bite-sized pieces, you know, just uh, (laughs) sort of chewing on a little bit, right? checking in, seeing if you're okay, just sort of keeping sure that you have people around. Daytime is probably easier to do reading also, just in general, when you feel like you might get triggered, but just to stop when you feel like it's getting to be too much, put it down. You actually have a really nice way of presenting that in the book that I got to speak of. Uh, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Is I like I do have this whole section on you know self care while reading this book. Very somber advice. Uh, that is, I, I think I think it is. I, I hope it is useful for readers. But I think it was maybe proofing that section for the third or fourth time that I was like, oh, I, I haven't done any of these things. And I do have. I do have outside support and I have, you know, I have access to good reality checking, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's when, when, when this material becomes a job, then something else takes over. That's very, self-care is hard to negotiate. I'm sure you find that yourself. Yes. Yeah. And I was thinking as you were reading over it and going over these wonderful ideas that you were sharing with other people for how to manage the information and you hadn't done any of it yourself. (laughs) I have that a lot when I'm giving sage advice to my clients and I'm thinking, actually not a bad idea right right yeah Yeah. and it might have been something that you actually did like you know Mm -hmm. a number of years ago and it worked for you and Mm -hmm. and we can can forget that stuff too and also i think the time feels limited like we want to use our time for the other right and don't think about using those things for ourselves because we're crafting how to help the other person Right. Um, right but it is a really good opportunity to check in and make sure you're doing self-care along the way. Right. Um, I'm always curious about what prompts people to have their experiences and then turn it into an opportunity for education and prevention and why that was important for you. Um, I didn't decide for it to be important to me. Uh, I think it emerged out of um, uh, uh, almost a readoption of writing practice as a as a kind of self-care practice after well a number of years after i left the second group that i was in um in in both of the um cults i was uh, recruited into there was a real um emphasis placed upon uh techniques for meditation and contemplation that would empty the mind or you know somehow rewrite your your thoughts with mantras or with with mm-hmm. the ideology of the group or or that or that you know the 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 empty non-conceptual state of whatever whatever was actually the ideal state for the human being to be in so that was really valued and i had prior to that uh i had been like a 
compulsive writer from my early teenage years. And one of the biggest sort of realizations of, of how deeply I was influenced by these, by these two experiences was that I probably stopped writing for a decade. Uh, and um, that's kind of astonishing for me to think about because writing is not just about content production or, or research for journalism. For me, it's also about um, the creation of an orderly world that I can um, begin to contemplate with a kind of safety and distance. And so, you know, when I finally started writing again, um, first of all, I, I felt blank. Um, uh, and I knew that wasn't right. And I had to, um, and there was something about the screen is too, you know, like I had, when I stopped writing, I had been using a laptop. And then when I started, you know, well, there's the laptop and it's updated. It's a new version, but it's still a screen. And there's something about something very bright and aggressive about the screen that was difficult for me to connect with. And, um, when the, you know, when I called up a new document and it was blank, it, that kind of reinforced this feeling of blankness that I, that I had had from the, the meditation practices and the various right. sort of cognitive distorting techniques right. that had been used. Um, and then I had this, I don't know how I figured it out. I think actually it was watching my um, stepdaughter uh, drawing. She's, she's an incredible artist. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I, and I realized, oh, I, I actually, I want to write with my hand something material. And I got a big notebook and, and, um, I began to write that way again, um, just sort of personal internal stuff, mm. but I did it in cursive. And there was something about, um, how I connecting the words together. Uh, is, is cursive an American word? Like, yeah, a hand, yeah. Um, connecting the words together. And then I would challenge myself to not let the pen leave the page. And then, um, and that, that created a kind of like internal consistency to the right. fact that I had a voice. And so it st started, started taking off from, from there. And then I kind of got back into um, some of the, some of the types of writing that I had done before as a cultural critic and um, uh, as a as a theorist, and I did some yoga philosophy as I got into the yoga world. Um, and at a certain point, uh, you know, when I began realizing that this very, um, you know, apparently benign culture was not only totally unregulated, but it was also filled with its own sort of cultic patches. Mm -hmm. I just started teaching myself how to report on that stuff. And yeah. um, I don't have any journalism training, but I've had some really good mentors. And I feel like I know how to do a lot of it now. And But because writing was also always like part of a recovery process for me, mm -hmm. it's not like I could ever say that reporting or doing journalism on cultic dynamics was was going to be objective or unbiased from my point of view like there's two things like i i can't extract myself from the material that i cover but i also realized that that if i did i think i would amputate the the content of a lot of its passion 
I feel like I'm playing a little bit of a line there where, where I am personally invested and I am healing wounds by writing about cultic dynamics. But at the same time, those, those wounds are a kind of ink. And so, so then the final, the final problem, which may be coming to a resolution or it might be short lived is that I'm realizing I just don't do have to do so much of it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have to do it so fast and I yeah. don't have to keep on top of everything. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So, right. It's nice. It's nice when you realize that, that you can keep kind of a um, things in balance, kind of a good homeostasis that you don't have to feel pressured. I like the idea of writing in cursive. Right. Um, I think there are a lot of people of a certain generation who don't know what that word means, but um, I think it's starting to come back. Um, hopefully, hopefully. And I think I, I wanted to, I wanted to write to uh, John Jalalich about it because she has a whole bit in one of her books about, about how, uh, recuperative uh, writing can be uh, for the cult survivor, and mm-hmm. for many of the reasons that I've that I've discussed. But I, I wanted to throw this. I just wanted to, to to flag this that little bit for her. I don't know if she's if she's heard that before. That mm-hmm. that there's there was something kinetic or somatic about it for me as well. That that yeah. yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Also, the cursive that it's this um, continuity connection. Right. Um, and that you, I think you want to be able to feel more connected to your story, to you, especially right. when you've been in situations with a lot of meditation and a lot of uh, feeling disconnected and, and in ways yeah. that I'm sure you're going to talk about. Well, if you, if you, you know, if, if you have a beautiful page and you have ink and you're connecting your words, your letters and your words together, there is a real bias towards first thought, best thought. And, you know, it's very, it's just too, it's just really, really easy to use the delete key on the laptop or the desktop. And I think that the, there's a discouragement from editing. And that was really important because I think I was taught over six years or so. And then in the aftermath afterwards to basically distrust everything that I thought. Okay. And so the, the healing part for you about being able to get it out and yes, journaling, writing, also having your information be your information that... No one else oh, yeah. has access to it, right? Until right. you decide that they have access to it and, and that they're going to be able to uh, not use it in the same way that it was used before, usually against you or forced right. out of you. Just being able to, to have some control over what is your information, I think, is very important. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 first, the first high demand group that I was in uh, was uh, led by a guy who's still around. His name is Michael Roach. Uh, I, I don't have any problem naming him because I've, I've written about him in a number of different places. Um, he's still doing his thing. Um, you know, people, people can look up. Uh, part of his community fell apart when one of his students died because, well, that's a long story. Uh, but um, there was severe institutional neglect involved and uh, failure to care for this person. But um, one of the practices that he had us do in this kind of neo-Buddhist set of rituals was to to journal, but in a confessional sense, that um, uh, that the journaling would be uh, six times a day that you'd write down your relationship with with one of about 200 vows that you had taken. And they're standard vows. They're not vows to him, but they're vows that he interprets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some of them are about, did you think ill of your teacher or did you speak poorly of your colleagues or did you, you know, did you have, did, were you basically a critical thinker or, you know, 
Um, yeah. and, and so the writing that I was able to do was confessional, right? So it was, it's kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah, the yeah. worst, the, 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 the thing, the thing that was precious to me was actually, was actually like flipped and, and inverted. Uh, and that was, that had a lasting impact, um, mm-hmm. where, uh, I, I think my tendency for a while was to think, about primarily what the reader wanted to get from me rather than <laughs> rather than representing my own my own internal agency so yeah. yeah yeah and that writing is so much about are you keeping to the rules mm-hmm. and it's also so formulaic right uh, which is really not how writing should be when it really comes from the heart but that wasn't at all about your heart it was really you know mm-hmm. no. it was like you were making sure that you were going over the checklist and uh, doing things right. And that's one of the, one of the things, I mean, you said, you say that it, that's not about your heart and it's, and it's, it's, that's true. And I think one of the most deceptive things about um, cults that take on, you know, religious content is that they will tell you that it is about your heart, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's, it's, I don't know that the political cult or the psychotherapy cult is able to do that or the business cult is able to do that in quite as cynical or ironic a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so your instincts often get scrambled, right? I think right. in these situations, the thing that you are told to do that's for your own spiritual care is actually the opposite of what you need for spiritual care. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it happens in almost every group. And also mm-hmm. the, the, the reason for it is turned around also to lower your defenses t- to doing right. it. If you feel right. like it's for your benefit. Right. Um, it also gives you this false sense that, yeah, your leader is this benevolent person who is helping you get more in touch with your heart. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, which is something that I, which I, which is something that I believed for. You know, I would say the first year or so of my recruitment into Michael Roach's group, um, mm-hmm. there was something very uh, personally attractive to me about him Mm -hmm. and it had to do with the fact that i think uh, i i identified with him as somebody who had you know separated off from his family and had completely changed his culture and had basically become fluent in tibetan although we're not quite sure about that uh and um had created a kind of like alternative fantasy avoidant life <laughs> that that seemed to that 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 I admired at first and that and that gave me a sense of relief from um you know other emotional stresses and and relationships so so i, I it was it was quite a shock to uh, realize that oh this guy actually isn't capable of caring for others um or at least not in a way that isn't grandiose or self-serving or 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 programmed in some way so and and i think that brings us to this next point about this idea of being able to write about these things with no you know really portraying that there's no blame no shame that as you were saying that if you realize that the person who was the puppeteer 
basically, is someone who has a personality disorder, someone who really has a yeah. deficit, someone who's really a troubled person, um, then it, it helps take it off of you. Absolutely. Uh, right? A lot more where you say, oh, I got into this well-oiled machine of manipulation. I didn't know what was happening. And and this is something that can happen to people. Um, and so tell me a little bit about that message about not feeling shame, not blaming. I'm sure that sensitivity for you probably comes out of having been treated that way or assumptions being made about you and how you were able to turn that around for people, for their perceptions. Right. I mean, I think that the moment where the penny dropped was um, in, in working on this book early on, I interviewed a uh, maybe you know a researcher named Kathleen Mann, mm-hmm. uh, and she said um, she just said over the phone. She said, "You know, no no one joins a cult." Um, mm-hmm. And I said, what, "What do you mean by that?" And she said, "People delay leaving organizations that misrepresented themselves." Yeah. And I can't remember what the rest of the interview was like because I was just stuck on that. I was I was like, "Oh, um, deception is." the kicker here it's the it's the thing it's the thing that you it's the thing that actually really does i would say from the perpetrator's side as well because because it's very difficult to assess the extent to which they're deceiving themselves um and that's that's a that's a deep possibility Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know from the victim survivor standpoint the fact that you can not there was no, there was no defense against you being given credible wrong stuff like there's no defense against you being falsely impressed by a show of authority it happens mm. to everybody uh the people that i was with in both of these groups came from all walks of life all levels of education there was no bullshit detector that these guys couldn't get around in some way now there was a lot of people who didn't didn't buy in of course they would come a couple of times and they would leave but uh for those of us who stayed we stayed because we were deceived and that utterly deconstructs the shame of the lost time, the, you know, sunken costs, the cognitive dissonance that you have to recover from. I think that was a very, very powerful idea. And then, you know, um, I, I must have, I must have cried three or four times, um, reading, um, Dan Shaw's beautiful book, uh, traumatized narcissism, Mm -hmm. um, about the, you know, it's speculative because it's psychoanalytic and, and, you know, he's, he's going from personal experience, but, and reporting on his client reports, but, you know, his, his portrayal of the, of the leader as somebody who, um, is utterly terrified that their extraordinarily fragile sense of self is not going to be fed in precisely the way it needs to be in order for them to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, that was, there was something very tender about that, but I also find that I, I feel like that's a private bit of therapy for me too, because as a, an activist journalist, I, I don't want to focus on that too much um, because, because um, one of the things that happens with these charismatic characters is that they get all the limelight. Right. <laughs> um, so I, and I also find that like, you know, when I'm studying, when I'm researching Patabi Joyce, who this book is about, um, you know, coming out in March, uh, you know, one of the biggest obfuscating questions to um, really 
making it public and driving home the fact that this guy sexually assaulted women for 30 years straight in uh, public in his yoga classes, uh, people would always say, well, you know, what was his intention? You know, uh, people would say, well, was, did he have an erection or, you know, what was, what did he, what did he really mean? And I'm like, we're spending a heck of a lot of time talking about the intentionality of a predator uh, and not a lot of time at all talking about what the survivors actually have to say. That focus, you know, Dan Shaw's work has been really powerful for me in uh, getting out of the animosity or just relieving the stress of the animosity that I bared to, that I bore towards the two leaders of the groups that I was in. Uh, but at the same time, you know, sometimes people have to feel animosity to to be to get free. I think so, especially after being in situations where you're not allowed to have anger and totally. resentment and animosity right. um, where your your ability to really protect yourself and have the spectrum of your emotions that are built into your system but that there happen to be some that threaten that fragile ego of the leader and so y- they're demonized uh, or you're diagnosed as having something wrong with you if you exhibit right. them or feel them it all the more reason for you to be able to then share this proof that you are a free person by saying this really pisses me off. Right. right. I have the right to feel that way. And right. it, it's a gauge about how wrong it was and how something did happen to you that was not okay. Uh, right. And I think it's a very important thing to have that register. Uh, I, there's a story that's, that's, that's coming to mind that, um, is actually really, um, beautiful. And to me, as part of, as part of this process of being able to be angry. Um, so my, my, you know, the bare bones of my history are like, you know, 96 to 2000, I'm in Michael Roach's group. And then as, you know, not, not uncommon with, with people who are in, um, high demand groups, when that was severed, uh, you know, because I realized this person is not who they say they are, and they are um, manipulative, and you know, all of the all of the things that I could see very clearly all at once, um, I was I had nothing. Um, I I had my relationship. Um, I didn't have a career. I didn't have money, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I had a friend back in Vermont who had said, oh, uh, Endeavor Academy in Wisconsin was one of where I, I had one of the most profound experiences of my life, you know, and, and I remember, I remember, I can't remember where I phoned him from, but it was like a payphone somewhere. And I said, who is, how do I find this place? And, you know, a few months later, I'm in another group. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that goes till 2003 or so. And then, like, yoga was something that uh, was just sort of around uh, in, in, the, in the, it was, the boom started to happen in around 2003, 2004. Uh, and, um, you know, as I got out of this second group, you know, here's this, like, unregulated industry that's kind of related to the spiritualities that I've been studying and you know you can get a training in it in 200 hours and you know open a yoga studio and so I was like okay well that's that's what I'm going to do um and uh you know not not knowing at all uh how how much I would have yet to learn of course but uh when I started 
getting back into my, you know, my own body, my own flesh through the yoga postures and, and, and breathing. Uh, this was great. And, you know, I didn't really see at first that, oh, this is, this, this is an environment in which this stuff happens as well. Um, and that's part of the reason that it took me so long to begin to see it is I just didn't want to see cultic dynamics in the yoga world because I had come to yoga as a, as a, as a type, as a recovery phase. Right. And, uh, but, um, one of the things that I did is I got more and more into yoga and, uh, uh, and Indian wisdom culture as I, I started studying things like Ayurveda and, and Jyotish or, or Vedic astrology. And I had um, a teacher uh, who is a peer of mine. He's my age. Uh, we share a background. We, sh- we share a lot of characteristics. And, uh, and what, I've re- what I've realized since is that he too was coming out of high demand groups oh. at the same time. And kind of, you know, almost like in this... Um, this, this, this thrust towards, let me find something authentic for myself, mm. uh, within this same field. He had like highly educated himself in, in Sanskrit and, and in a number of texts. And, you know, he had become, he had become a really good, uh, independent scholar of, of Indian wisdom culture, but also a very devotional person. And, and, and that's where we were, that's where we were different. Anyway, uh, the our relationship was very close and then it got you know there was there was friction between us and then i started publishing and then i started publishing kind of not not well researched pieces but like blog pieces on you know the creepy feeling that i would get when i went to a particular yoga ashram <laughs> or or that you know um you know there's a there's a a restaurant here in Toronto called Annapurna that has been open since like 1970, whatever, uh, where uh, devotees of Sri Chinmoy work for oh, I yeah. think I think pennies pennies on the dollar uh, serving serving yeah. right serving very low low protein food uh, and but smiling like all the time and I think I wrote something snarky about the about Annapurna and so my my friend and this guy who was teaching me he was just incensed like these, these are, these are, these are good people. They haven't hurt you. They're not doing anything wrong to you. Uh, you are turning them into children. Why are you, you know, why, why are, why are you so insulting? And we were standing on the street and I, and I said, I said, look, um, there's something off here. There's, there's some power dynamic that is not right. There is something that, 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 that feels, that feels wrong to me. Uh, and the argument escalated and it was like, it was one of the most beautiful June days I can ever remember in my life. And here me and a, this is a friend, somebody who like, and it's, it's, it's not, it's hard to make friends after you come out of high demand groups. And I had made this friend and we were yelling at, yelling at each other at the top of our lungs on the street corner under this beautiful shining sun. And then it was just, it was like, you know, screw you and screw you. And then off I rode on my bike. And when I got home, I had like a mystically quiet, still warm experience of, oh, I can be 
angry about what I happened, about what happened to me, and I don't have to believe anything that anybody wants me to believe anymore. And I don't have to be, I don't, I'm not beholden to anybody. And I'm just, I'm just here. I remember it was almost, I was like, I was like, I was wondering whether people ever converted to being atheists and they felt some mystical experience, right? Where like all of this stuff that they had formerly believed in just kind of melted away. And uh, along with all of the feelings of guilt and shame that kept them sort of trying to appease whoever they were serving at the time, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so anyway, it was, but, but there was something about the rage that, that like, like to the sky on in the, like, we could have been locked up, right? So there was something about that surge of of rage that I was able to share with a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's very, very powerful for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's also cumulative. Um, and so sometimes you kind of deposit it on a friend <laughs> when it's really from a lot of different right. things. But a friend could say, oh, whoa, you know, uh, <laughs> slow down, slow down, Sparky. Let's, okay, let's try to figure out where this is coming from. But I think... <laughs> that, you know, what is really important about that? I mean, it's also, you know, ironic that he said that you're talking about them like children because Sri Chinmoy actually called his father <laughs> and girls. Right. Uh, and he was the father. So that's right. for that group right. back um, uh, in this weird way. But, uh, you know, at the same time, yeah, being able to have your anger. And then when you were saying that you wonder if people who become atheists have that moment, I think anytime you have something that feels like an epiphany that comes with this openness to a new idea that also right. comes with relief. Right. Yes. You're going to have that moment that feels transcendent uh, and feels really good in the way that it connects with our brains and the chemicals that are released. Yeah. So yes, I, it, I'm glad that you had that. It sounds like it was a really good, important and kind of watershed moment. It was, it was absolutely a watershed moment. There was, there was, um, as I said, this falling away of the guilt and shame that kept me in in an appeasing or deferential relationship to this whole series of structures. But then, but then also, um, this sense as I sat in my study and the sun was coming through the, coming through the, um, window that, that I was okay. Like I was, I was, I, I didn't have to work. I didn't have to, I didn't have to work at this internal self anymore. Like I was just okay. I would, there's no more mantras, no more studying, no more, no more trying to figure out the patterns of the stars. No, you know, no more, no more trying to, um, you know, hone my intuition so that it could mirror that of the charismatic master. Um, yeah, I just didn't have to, I didn't have to do it. It was very relieving. You know, then there's other cycles of stress that start up uh, as as part of as part of a recovery process. But yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the freedom, also the stress that comes with a certain amount of freedom that right. we're not used to. That has its own stressors that I think people are not quite ready for, even though it's better to be free than not. But still, <laughs> it's good to have a little prep for how that feels at first. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Right. right? Um, I'm just curious. Also, before this, Michael Roach's group. Um, so. Just in like little, again, bite-sized piece, um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your family and kind of what was leading you potentially into your first group. And then I want to certainly hear more about the experiences that prompted your book. Right. Um, I, 
I, well, I grew up here in Toronto and uh, middle class background. Um, I I think a very defining character feature of my childhood was uh, a very retrograde Orthodox uh, boys school, boys Catholic school education mm-hmm. um, that featured a lot of um, you know uh, physical and emotional abuse, and wow. so that was a that was a and it was always, you know, I think that one way that I very naturally normalized it was through the through through spiritualizing it. So I remember associating very, you know, clearly uh, the you know the 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 gore of Catholic iconography with a sense of you know the necessity of suffering. Um, that was a very early equation for me. Um, and then there was something too about, you know, we were, as boys, we were uh, all to sing and to make music. So it was St. Michael's Choir School here in Toronto. And one of the things that um, I think also made its way into my wiring was this connection between aesthetic beauty and, and pain uh, or aesthetic beauty and cruelty. Um, so um, pretty, I mean, pretty typical Catholic stuff, but I think ramped up in a way for somebody who grew up in the seventies that I think was kind of odd, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Canada for the most part, um, you know, Catholic schools just weren't like that. This was, this was a real, this was a real throwback. So that kind of set me apart. Um, my mother was, or my mother is, uh, like, uh, uh, had a master's degree in English and was an English teacher in high school. And so I was surrounded by, you know, great books. Um, and I read, um, beautiful losers by Leonard Cohen way too early. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I heard him sing Joan of Arc, oh, wow. uh, on I, when I was like 15 years old at three o'clock in the morning on the CBC, uh, whenever that album was released with, with yeah. Jennifer Warren's and, you know, here's this like male voice, um, talking about consuming the heroin in in bursts of love and light, and like it, there, there was just something where, like, I, I I would like to blame the late Leonard Cohen for further spiritualizing or rationalizing my Catholic, you know, ideology, uh, because because that was that was a really potent uh, um, moment for me, where it was not just that it was virtuous to associate beauty with pain. Uh, it was also aesthetic, like it was also, it was also beautiful. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was early to leave home. Um, I, uh, went through probably a number of bouts of undiagnosed clinical depression. And then I had a series of, um, uh, idiopathic, like major seizures over the period of about mm-hmm. uh, six months when I was 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and I associated those seizures uh, too with a kind of mystical experience. Yeah. So this, this is something, this is something that I, I I'd love to talk to uh, Yuvala or sometime about because uh, because I know he does a lot of uh, study yeah. in the relationship between the charismatic charismatic figure and, and religiosity and epilepsy. Yeah, if anyone wants to study temporal lobe epilepsy and right. uh, 
and well, what it does. I mean, it's it is fascinating. Yeah. Well, he, you know, it's funny. You're listening to your to, to your conversation with him. It reminded me of Geschwin syndrome because, like, I I, I don't have a diagnosis, but I map <laughs> pretty closely onto two of the three common characteristics, and okay. one is. One is one is hyper religiosity, but it's not of the type that is like uh, devotional. But you know, the the person will show will present like an outsized interest, intellectual interest in things religious. Um, and then the other thing is hypergraphia or nonstop writing. So, <laughs> so you know, this is a period of six months or so that they that the seizures uh, took place, and I, I I they haven't happened since. Uh, but, but something, something happened, something happened during that time. It was also a time of like profound social isolation and that's kind of the bridge, you know, into the group for sure. So then you, then through the, I'd say the help of a friend got involved in this next group. So tell me about your experiences there. Well, yeah. So Endeavor Academy, I think still exists, but I don't know how many people still live there. Um, I've, lost touch with the people who are still there i'm still in touch with like through social media with three or four of my like former members who were in residence there mm. it's in uh, wisconsin dells wisconsin and it was it was founded by a guy named charles anderson who um died in 2008 and so that would have been like five years after after I'd left. And he was a recovered, well, not quite rec- like a dry alcoholic, um, alcoholic anonymous, uh, you know, what's it called? The blue book, a blue book thumping, yeah. but also his main text was A Course in Miracles. And I think that what impressed, I mean, I actually fell for this, which I, I still have, <laughs> even though it's, I was deceived, I, I, I still give myself a side eye about this one. When I first walked into, when I first walked into one of his sessions, which would just him be, be him sort of teaching extemporaneously and often, often in a sort of garbled, um, uh, you know, jazzy, scatty kind of way. Uh, he was quite a quite a wordsmith and bullshit artist. Uh, he he looked straight at me and he said he said, "Oh, I see the Buddhist has arrived." And then he took his sock and he like smacked me across the head. And there's this like conversion story in Tibetan Buddhism where where you know one of the saints Marpa um, takes his sandal and hits Milarepa across the head over the head with it and. Yeah. And, you know, I found out later that, that somebody had given some intel to him, right? Uh, and I thought, I thought he had just intuited that. Mm-hmm. And he said, but he said, you're, you're, you are free as, as God made you. Uh, what are you going to do? Meditate about that? And, you know, there was something very compelling, not just about the deception, but about this line, which he would feed to everybody, which is, which is, you know, you are, as a, as a human being, you are a perpetual tangle of doubt and uncertainty. And can you just get over it already? Uh, like you're not doing yourself any favors by, you know, 
by contemplating or by meditating or you're you know just understand that you know you're standing on the light of god right now or 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 whatever and and i and because i'm certain about that because this was his pitch because i'm certain about who i am you can be too uh and um so there was something like like to this day there was something like compelling and um i don't know like existentially impressive about that particular turn that I haven't seen in any other set of exchanges. I mean, maybe, maybe this sounds familiar to you, but the thing is, is that, is that, uh, he was really a one trick pony. Like, like that was the one, that was the one sort of cognitive challenge, Mm. uh, to people's anxiety or depression that he could offer. And then everything that was built around that uh, was, you know, financial, emotional, physical, sexual exploitation. So, um, but it took me about, it took me about a year to recognize that. Uh, mm-hmm. and then I think as is common with, with a lot of people's experience, it, it takes, it takes a lot longer to leave than you want. Uh, and, uh, that's because it's hard to find anybody to talk to. It's because, you know, you've invested a lot already. Uh, it's because, um, you know, what, what are you going to do outside anyway? Um, so, yeah, yeah. um, it's true. You doubt yourself. I mean, I, I've heard people say that, that, you know, by and large, and I've seen this with the former members that I work with, that they, they were unhappy for a very long time before they took action to leave. Right. Right. Uh, And still some are kind of half in half out. They're just, it's a process. Sometimes it takes longer for different people, certainly. It's interesting you talk about his way of being with you and being on the stage. And even though you saw that he was this one-trick pony and it became, you know, um, what is it that if you're a hammer, everything is a nail? Like, it all is sort of the same for everyone. Right, right, right. Um, I think that uh, there is something about someone being very sure, uh, and that's what works in sales. He was a salesman. Yeah. So he was confrontative and he also seemed insightful and psychic to a certain degree, even though he had gotten intel, which often happens. Um, But I think the fact that he had this kind of challenge for you and also said that he was someone who had benefited from this and he is someone who is these things and you can be this too. Right. right. Um, Yeah. It is like every sales pitch wrapped into this perfect little package. So, right. you know um that it it made an impact it's every technique of influence all just in this little you know a couple of sentences right right he he wrapped it up and and tied it in a bow and he did it in a way that was alternating and this is where i find alexander stein's work so incredibly useful you know really sharply alternate alternating between the seemingly loving and the absolutely wrathful uh, so, so putting one in the very confused position of, uh, oh, am I receiving love at this point and, or am I receiving, am I being dismissed or am I being abused? Uh, how can I tell those apart? Is one the function of the other? Does one, you know, depend upon the other? Yeah. So, yeah. so he was, he was, per- right. he was particularly, he was particularly good at that. And it's very good. And it's a very controlling thing to do. Uh, it's something that I've talked about in the past about intermittent gratification. Right. Right. So you kind of wait around 
for it to feel good again, for the person to be happy with you. Right. And you then learn that you need to stay there. You can't abandon this because there might be a payout soon. So if you can learn how to do it right, then it's going to feel really good because when it feels bad, it feels bad. And it's right. in front of people too. So you kind of want to have that resolution that's in a public way in front of people. Right. Um, yeah, very controlling. And and um, at Endeavor Academy, uh, and this gave me a little bit of insight moving into researching Ashtanga Yoga, is um, the feel-good uh, drug that was on offer every day was fairly regular. There was um, there was an inconsistency for sure in whether or not uh, uh, Charles Anderson was going to love you or uh, or abuse you, and so that, as I understand, like dopamine systems, that kind of uncertainty like really jacks up the the pleasure principle when it hits. But but then so there was another mechanism which was called session, and um, that was. Uh, every morning from about eight till 11, he would start by giving like a rambling sermon about, about the course in miracles or, you know, whatever he was thinking about, uh, that would last for about an hour. Uh, and then he would have, you know, Mitch, uh, one of his, I wonder where he is, uh, but he would have one of his main students play like, um, music, like really loud club music. Uh, and then we would all get up and like Kundalini jitterbug all over the room, uh, arms raised, jumping as high as we could, barking like dogs, um, smashed in together. And, and when I came across this line in, in, in Stein's book of, I think she gets it from Hannah Arendt. She talks about like an airless compression between people within a totalitarian system. That was exactly it. Like we actually had you know, this, there was a, like a mosh pit dance party, which sounds great in some ways, but it was every single day and it, and you basically had to go, but, and, and there was, and it was intense physically, it was intense psychologically, but it was, there was so much exertion involved that um, there was this feeling of like, almost blankness for the rest of the day. Uh, you know, so there was this like stimulation of, of like pseudo euphoria that, um, when I saw, uh, that hidden camera stuff footage in wild, wild country, mm -hmm. um, where, uh, they captured some of what was going on in, uh, either in the Oregon ashram or in Pune in India, where the, do you remember, did you see that? Where there was the, yeah. the group, the sort of fly on the wall group therapy sessions that were, that were like, uh, violent, you know, yeah. physical and sexual assault, you know, cast as therapy encounters. Right. Um, but, but the daily experience now, that might have been uh, that might have been the most sort of intense uh, uh, pockets of that activity, but the daily experience where people were doing this kind of like, you know, shaking and and speaking in tongues and screaming and crying and and uh, and all of this extroversion, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I really wish the filmmakers had actually interviewed people about what the impacts of that shit was because. Um, I know from personal experience that that it's a, an extremely effective control mechanism that that nothing matters. You overload yourself with that kind of endorphin rush, mm -hmm. you know, for a couple hours in the morning, 
you can't think for the rest of the day. You're going to be you're you're going to be blank. You're going to do what you can socially to get by, but really you're going to be sort of there's going to be a glaze between you and the next person. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I I've been ever since then, and since and since sort of contemplating how, what the impact was of that on me, I've been fascinated in especially the the the, the bodily um, uh, tactics of high control groups, you know, and that shows up in, in the work that I do on Ashtanga yoga, because, uh, the people who ended up being, um, subjugated and assaulted by, uh, Patavi Joyce were also, uh, involved in, in intense, intense physical activity, uh, that really lowered their, their defenses. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a point of fascination for me. Yeah, I think that it. Uh, there are a couple things that uh, that are really interesting about it. One is that it does take you into a different headspace. There's no question. It exhausts you and exhilarates you at the same time. Right. It, it sends you also off balance. Um, but also, it's this when it's done in a perfunctory way, um, then it, it is not something that feels authentic. You're pushing yourself to do right. it, um, which means that it could have been beyond what your body could tolerate. You might've already come from a place of being underslept or right. underfed and it's just depleting you more and more, but it leaves you in a confused state because there's a rush and kind of a giddiness around it at times. It also Absolutely. And, and right. so I think just to, it's another way to keep people off balance. Right. And I think um, it's also terribly addictive Mm. Uh, because if there's, you know, certain endorphin opiate release at a, um, at a high level at a regular time per day, uh, you know, and that that's, and that that's also involved in a kind of social contact, but it's a, yeah. it's a blindered or it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, um, it's not a, it's not an intersubjective social mm -hmm. contact. It's, uh, there's this there's this sheen between people. It's like you're you're using each other for the contact high, but you're simultaneously isolated. It's really hard to break away from that. And I think I think it was that daily experience I, that that I held on to longest, actually, long after I realized that Charles Anderson is just just babbling. Long after I realized that you know oh oh yeah, so a bunch of people are going personally bankrupt, taking out credit card loans to pay for his bullshit. And oh yeah, like I still, I hung on to that, that bodily experience because that was, that was um, a really powerful drug. Very powerful drug. Right. And yeah. your body accommodates and acclimates to something right. that happens on a regular basis. So at that time of day, you know, your body can start to crave it or miss it and whether or not it's healthy anymore. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that becomes a confusing message for your system as well. I think also anything that's done in that multi-sensory way also has more staying power within our systems afterwards. For sure. For sure. Because uh, there was yeah. just more input um, from the experience, but yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to you more about that, but, and to expand on that, I think, right. so to bring us to Ashtanga yoga, first of all, how did you leave this group and then start doing your other research? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I was, so it was about two, 2003. And one of the things that Anderson would do is that, is that he would finish up session and he would tell Mitch to put the dance music on and, and he, then he would go upstairs. It was this old, hotel if anybody knows the wisconsin dells it's like filled with old mobster hotels 
that are kind of like falling in and you could buy them up in the eighties or whatever for cheap. And so he'd, he'd go to his upper room, uh, and his, you know, the inner circle plus the kind of sycophants du jour would, would run up the stairs after him. And I remember, uh, I don't know, I don't know why I went up one day, but I remember I was the first one there for some reason. And I opened, I knocked on his door and he said, he said, yeah. And I came around the corner and it's this like 1970s, 80s hotel room, um, totally sort of nondescript. And, you know, you open the door and turn the corner of the bathrooms right to the right, just as it would be in a hotel room. And, and I, and I, and I looked in and I saw him just like looking into the mirror, like, what the hell am I doing? That was exactly, he didn't say that, but it was like, I'm exhausted. Wow. This is, this is right. And then I said, I said, old man, that's what we called him. And then he, and then I literally saw him put his face on back again. He turned, he turned and then he was like, he did his googly eyes and he did his, uh, you know, how, you know, I, I see who you are, but I fucking saw that guy become his persona and something ha- something snapped in my brain. Yeah. Something similar happened with, with Michael Roach. So that's been key for me is, is to 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 realize that to to just see this veil crack yeah and and um so anyway i can't remember it wasn't that long afterwards that i that i was like just edging away and trying to you know uh pull my roots out without breaking them and and you know with withdraw without being amputated and preserve some friendships and you know, and, and, uh, you know, preserve the relationship that I was in at the time. And, and mm-hmm. so, so yeah, then there was a long period of, of, you know, doing, waiting on tables and learning yoga and, and wandering and, uh, and, and as I said, I came into yoga, um, as, uh, because I found it to be a recovery space. Mm-hmm. You know, I could feel my body as mine again. I could, I remember the first time I rolled over after a class, I looked at my hand and I went, oh, hello, that's, I'm here and I'm, I'm okay. And, and so there was something about, there was, there was something about the very simple instructions that, um, were very powerful to me. And, you know, but honestly, it didn't take that long before I started hearing about about some toxic dynamics. I just didn't want to know, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to hear that much about it. And maybe, uh, you know, about eight or nine years into my teaching career, owning two studios by that time, um, I started to hear more and more stories about, you know, not only not only. Um, sexual misconduct and and financial shenanigans within various yoga organizations but then really specifically oh you know patabi joyce who is probably responsible for more responsible for the global expansion and commodification of yoga practice than anybody else except for mr iyengar this guy was uh an open and he was understood to be a sexual predator and that he got away with it and 
that stayed on the level of rumor as far as I was concerned, except that in 2010, one of the women who he assaulted named Annika Lucas finally, you know, published about it 10 years after the assault happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people didn't look at it very carefully and, and it kind of disappeared and the website that it was on went under and it took, you know, me actually realizing that I was ignoring the story of a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Diane Bruni here in Toronto. Uh, and she had been aware of the sexual assault. She was part of the Ashtanga yoga world. You know, she told this story and I just, I, I realized at a certain point that I had not wanted to hear it. And then I, when I realized that I was like, no, I'm going to, I got to figure this out because this is extraordinary. I was particularly, um, I was particularly taken aback, I think, and fearful of the fact that it was a mainstream story. I was fear, I was fearful of the fact that this was not, we were not talking about some weird leader of some weird group that I was in, in Wisconsin. We were talking about somebody who had had more influence over this global industry than almost anybody else. And that some key ways in which uh, the the postures are practiced, namely that, you know, teachers and students have been operating in these spaces of implied consent with regard to touch, that, um, you know, that, that teachers have felt free for the last 20 years to just touch people's bodies, even though they have no training whatsoever in, you know, manual therapy or whatever, that that all comes from that guy. Uh, and, and others, but, but very, but very strongly from that guy. And he was adjusting people. Uh, he was adjusting women, uh, primarily so that he could sexually assault them. And he was adjusting men, uh, I would argue primarily so that he could physically assault them. Uh, people do say they had, you know, wonderful experiences being, being adjusted by them. But then, you know, if you scratch the surface, uh, they'll also describe being hurt. Um, or being in utter terror and, you know, somehow willing themselves to, to feel better about it. Um, so it took about, it took about, you know, I, I, I dug up Annika Lucas's story. And then another writer, another journalist named uh, Elizabeth Kadetsky said, you know, you should try to get in touch with Karen Haberman, um, you know, because uh, she might have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. Karen Haberman has changed her name. I have to, you know, do this detective work to find her. I phone her out of the blue. Uh, and she actually, if people look her up, she's actually become through um, her own activism, one of the most prominent voices in the yoga reform movement, even though she doesn't really care about the yoga world anymore. Yeah, about three years of making connections like that uh, slowly put me in touch with um, a total of 16 people who gave testimony as to having been uh, um, assaulted by Joyce over a 30-year period. And I think that, again, just to return to like my main fascination is that this is somebody with like mainstream, mainstream, mainstream influence. I remember when I pitched the article, the feature article that I got published to the Walrus, my my pitch line was, this is the Harvey Weinstein of yoga. I said, except that nobody thought of Harvey Weinstein as being a spiritual master. What I really wanted to convey uh, to the public in part through this book was, um, that, you know, in an unregulated industry in which people are seeking 
physical, emotional, uh, and perhaps therapeutic and, and sometimes spiritual mm-hmm. um, benefits. We have to look at where the material comes from really carefully. Uh, we have to look at you know who's who's behind it, who's created it, what kind of what kind of power dynamics have uh, created this 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 teaching structure that has now uh, spread across the world. So you know this is not to say that that uh, you know everybody who's everybody who's engaged in modern postural yoga is somehow abusing people. It's still going to be a minority. Uh, a very small minority, but hopefully the the work starts to expose that minority. That would be really quite wonderful because, you know, I I hear about different um, yoga organizations run by people who were brought up on different charges, others where it really stays under the radar and you don't really know about them until you get involved and then turns out them, you know, oops, the leader thinks he's the Messiah. Like it wasn't in the brochure. Right, right. Yeah, and there's a basic safety issue involved, too, with regard to the dishonesty of of groups that uh, harbor abuse histories. Like, and I, so some of what I'm doing, uh, not only in the book, but also as a consultant, is trying to figure out and then also call out um, people who are basing their authority for their spiritual content upon an organization that has an abuse history, but not being clear with that and not showing the public, okay, well, this is how I've actually understood it, or this is how I've interrogated the power dynamics that I actually don't want to replicate. You know, one, (laughs) some of your your, uh, listeners would probably know of um, a popular writer here in Canada named uh, uh, Dr. Gabor Matei, uh, who's a he's a GP, but but he has written a lot about trauma and and uh, you know adverse childhood experiences and addiction and stuff like that. He has a program that he collaborates on with um, uh, another teacher, and it seeks to bring yoga practices into his. Uh, addictions recovery program, or he or he lends support to a program that's called Beyond Addiction, and the yoga portion is provided by um, members of the Kundalini Yoga group. And you know, this is a group with a really um, problematic history. That uh, because I don't think Dr. Matei investigated it, they just sort of get a free pass into providing services ostensibly for traumatized people. And then anybody attending these programs, however, can Google, you know, Kundalini yoga cult or Kundalini yoga abuse. And and then suddenly, suddenly they realize they're in a training program in which somebody is um, promoting the benefits of the ideas and the practices they got from somebody who was clearly... uh, either unethical or an abusive person. And then we have to wonder about, okay, well, what else are they passing on? (laughs) Or, or has that, has that history been, has that history been digested in any kind of transparent way? So I think that's a, that's a, that's going to be a big growth industry actually. And is, is people in the yoga and Buddhism worlds figuring out, oh, how do I, I learned this stuff and some of it was really helpful to me and I teach it, but I also learned it from a very problematic place and from a problematic person, you know, whose failures conscious or, or, or unconscious and perhaps their crimes. Uh, I certainly don't want to either, 
rationalize or normalize or elevate or 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 just not look at so so yeah that's i think i think transparency is going to be the keyword of the next 30 years of the yoga and buddhism worlds and i i think it's a very important thing also for there to be some sort of system of checks and balances you know with so many of these groups that don't have a kind of an overarching governing body, then anything can happen right, and there right. is no oversight. And so how do you set that up without it being kind of a police state, but still where right. there is somebody to to call if something happens and that they'll right. do something to, to protect you. I feel like that needs to be more set in place. And I, I'm glad that you're, you know, you're talking about this transparency. What's also interesting, I'm sure you found is that some people care about that more than others when they hear that there there's a group that has kind of a checkered history or a leader that has a checkered history they might say that's enough for me to not want to be involved and other people say yeah but the practice really feels good or i really like it and so right um, right and you know. and the and the dividing line might there might be um really trauma awareness uh either of either of you know the person's own history uh you know if you if you've had a if you've had a relatively you know, not nobody has an easy go of it, but it, but if you if you don't identify as having a trauma load, you might be in that latter category of like, well, I'm going to take what I can, and and uh, but if you do know uh, a little bit of what you what you carry, then I think that transparency is going to be is going to be more important, and I think it means that those who um, are aware of their trauma loads are really the canaries in the mine for everybody else to use the phrase of a friend of mine, Theo Wildcroft, who, you know, says that, you know, in order to create a really safe space, it has to be safe for the most vulnerable person there. Uh, good good if we can start holding ourselves to that ideal, but it's difficult because um, yoga and, and Buddhism, uh, like life coaching, are all unregulated. Um, and and they're also very, um, and, and they're resistant to regulation, not just because people want to continue to be under the radar, but also because, at least in the yoga world, the discourse is heavily Americanized. Uh, and there's a very, like, I, I would say characteristically American uh, approach to, you know, keep your hands off of my spirituality. This is my, this is my private, this is my private stuff. That's a factor, too. Right. So how to strike a balance so that it's not tampered with and there isn't so much of that kind of um, regulatory force where it doesn't work anymore as kind of a spiritual endeavor um, because it's too tense, but also that there are safeguards because it really, that that has been lacking. I'm really glad that you're, um, you know, pinpointing the problems, the pitfalls. And I, I, I'm curious as we finish up, what have you found? What have you found that you've learned just in terms of the vulnerability, the vulnerability that we all have and why we might have it? I know we touched on it a little bit, but you've done so much research and you've talked to so many people. I'm just curious about your insights as we finish up. Um, I think that the people that I have I mean, I mean, this this book that's coming out just wouldn't exist without the bravery of the women who were able to find a voice to speak about how they were abused within this group. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning how to listen to that experience has, I, I almost want to say it's 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 become a kind of 
it suggested a different type of spirituality to me. When I try to put myself in the place of somebody like Karen Rain, who, you know, who's taken 20 years to recover from uh, these daily assaults, I realize something about how much care people actually need <laughs> uh, and how much support they need, you know, not care directly from me, but but that's just sort of structural support and how important it is for people to be believed when they describe their trauma experiences and how important it is for um, people to be advocated for when uh, the prevailing ideology of the culture is to blame the victim for having been so stupid for staying or to um, to foster this belief that, you know, well, your free will should have and your common sense should have just turned you away from that toxic environment. And, you know, why didn't it? Um, these are all really ignorant responses that lead me back to something that Annika Lucas actually told me in the first interview that we did with her about her story, which is that, um, and this has always stuck with me. She said, uh, she said, I believe that we can recognize the trauma of other people to the extent that we recognize that we ourselves have been traumatized. That's become a, a, a mantra for me is that by, by listening to, by listening to Karen in uh, making a lot of mistakes, you know, screwing up a lot, interrupting her or, you know, whatever I've, whatever I've done over the last couple of years of interviewing, I have been able to understand something more about my own experience. And I've also stopped being afraid I think of the fact that the traumatized person is somehow a danger to my sense of order in the world. My friend uh, Theo Wildcroft says that society regards the trauma victim or the cult survivor, we could say also as uh, contagious. If you really take on their story, if you really go into, uh, oh, this is how you were completely overwhelmed. This is how you were totally taken over. And this is the profound material and perhaps unchangeable effects that you've experienced. If you really go into that as a listener, you might both have to connect with your own experience of that, or you might have to start asking questions about the whole thing. You might have to start asking questions about all of your relationships, about all of the systems of power that you participate in. And, and I think that's like, that's, that's very profound. And I'm not so scared of that anymore. I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm free of, of uh, the fear of questions but um, they're certainly less than they have been. That's all very beautiful. And I think uh, it's so important that we're talking about people who have been through trauma and then they're re-traumatized by being sequestered in that kind of group of people who might do us harm or might right. give us uncomfortable insights that we're not quite ready for. About many things, but it is very true. And, uh, and to not be afraid of it, to be able to kind of protect yourself along the way, finding ways to do that, so that you can invite their experiences into your world and their pain into your world without right. taking you over. I think it's a nice way of finding that balance of connection right. to other people in the world and their experiences. Beautiful. I can't wait for people to read your book. I mean, I wrote down some phrases as you were talking. I can see that you're a wordsmith. I wrote down um, Kundalini jitterbug and sycophants <laughs> du jour. They were great. Uh, and when I hear one of those little nuggets here, I have to write it down. But that is, uh, it's, really great to be able to talk to you. I know you have many more stories, so hopefully we can we can speak again and yeah. uh, not only more stories, but more insights. And just in terms of your 
your own uh, way of kind of mm, navigating so many different realms and worlds and trying to be open to things and and that in healthy environments that's wonderful and in unhealthy environments you're damaged and hurt and you can right. regret the openness which is really a, such a crime to do to people who are just there with their open mind and open heart but thank you so much thank you very much for listening please support indoctrination on patreon at patreon.com indoctrination be sure to give us a follow on our social media Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.